Welcome to the stage, your hosts, Jonathan Soma and Sarah Lohman.
The salt isn't melting the ice, it's lowering the freezing temperature of water. Make sense? So now you've got something that is colder than freezing, and, and very shortly before the end of the uh, 16th century, chefs were already using this method, this super cold ice, water, salt mixture, to freeze what were previously drinks or custards, essentially. And this is an original ice cream maker, uh, which this is very lo-fi, but even if you have an ice cream maker at home, an electric version, it's still the same principle, that you've got an outer container and an inner container, and in between that, there's something very, very cold. Originally, salt, uh, ice packed with salt. The center container is pewter, has a little lid that you would lift off, and you use a tool called a spaddle, which is a special type of spatula, to scrape down the sides where there's more frozen material, mix it up, put that back on, and essentially you're just like twisting it back and forth and continuously agitating it. So this tool is around from like the 17th century onwards. Um, and it's like, that's still my ice cream's name. Let's talk about a couple early ice cream flavors. Chocolate was a really early ice cream flavor because it was a drink. So it was a super logical leap to freeze things that were drinks. Chocolate, by the way, is indigenous to the Americas. This is the native region of chocolate. This is what a cacao tree looks like. Um, uh, unlike other fruit trees, it doesn't have uh, fruits that come off the end of branches. It has fruits that just jut out like big yellow footballs directly off the side of the trunk. Uh, I actually don't know of any other plant that does this. And then inside it has these uh, fruits, which I've never been able to, to taste fresh. That's one of my like culinary historian goals in life, that and making marshmallows from actual marshmallow. Um, and also making this drink where you um, melt a cow directly into a bowl of wine. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> so this is super, super sweet, and it starts to ferment immediately. So you let it ferment, and then you take the seeds out of the middle, which are generally known as cacao beans, and in those seeds, it's got like um, a flaky feel on it. There are these little chocolatey bits, which are known as, as nibs. And it's these that are roasted and then ground, usually with heat, and then historically is whipped with water, sometimes with flavorings like honey or uh, vanilla bean or chili peppers, originally drunk by uh, the Maya people and then by the Aztecs in Central America. And then that's how it came to Europe too, after colonization in the 16th century. Uh, it crossed the ocean back to Europe, super rich people drank it. It was the first, um, it has an alkaloid in it that's very similar to caffeine. So it predated tea and coffee. It was the first caffeinated drink to hit Europe. They're rich people, so they want to spend their money on things, right? So chocolate is one, and then they added expensive spices, but then people began making all these like accessories, in particular this one. This is a traditional chocolate pot. The earliest example we have of these chocolate pots is in a drawing um, of a diary by a woman named Lady Anne Fanshawe who was British, but her husband was serving in the Spanish court. He was an ambassador. So there's a chocolate pot, and this, I know it's, it's kind of tiny, but maybe some of you in the front row can make out what that is. That's a Moyanillo, which is not actually authentically indigenous. Uh, it was invented by, in Spain, and then brought to Mexico as a tool for frothing chocolate. So it's actually a piece of European influence. Other original ice cream flavors, uh, rose and orange flower water, Orange flower water is made from a Seville orange, which has super odorous petals. This was a more common ice cream flavor in Europe. Rose flower water was more common in America. 
because we could produce, um, it was easy to grow the damask rose, which is what rose flower water is made out of. Also about to be my next tattoo, it's going right here. Um, and another really popular early flavor was Parmesan. Um, not even joking a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so I wrote a blog called Four Pounds Flour, that's why my social media is at that, and I made Parmesan ice cream, so if you want all the details, just give it a Google. Um, the, I would say the abbreviated version of what it tastes like is like um, how feet smell, <laughs> but sweet. <laughs> process, process, think about that. <laughs> think about that next time your feet smell, then think about that as ice cream. Vanilla is actually fairly late to the game. Um, again, like it was mostly custard flavors and also drinks that were frozen originally. And vanilla is also indigenous to the Americas. Its home um, is a really around the Gulf Coast and a little bit into Central America too, a little bit further south. And it, people would take the plant out of the Americas but couldn't figure out how to propagate it. So it wasn't until the 1840s that uh, it was figured out how to hand pollinate it. That process was actually figured out by a 12-year-old enslaved black boy, black boy in an island nearby Madagascar. I write about that in my book, Eight Flavors and Untold Story of American Cuisine. Um, it's remarkable to remember this young man's name, but of course he died in poverty because it's the 19th century and he was black. So it's a fascinating story and a depressing one. Think about that next time you have ice cream. <laughs> this is Thomas Jefferson's recipe for ice cream. He was our ambassador to Paris. He wanted to bring Paris home to the boondocks of America. So he um, recorded, we have 12 different recipes. He also brought back essentially a servant from Paris and he took James Hemings with him. James Hemings is Sal Sally Hemings' sister brother and James Hemings was trained as a professional chef and pastry chef in Paris and actually used that to negotiate for his freedom because actually in Paris both he and Sally were free um, and they didn't have to come back. So he negotiated for his own freedom and Sally negotiated for, his for her children's freedom, her and Thomas's children's freedom. Think about that too. So this is one of the recipes he brought back um, and it is a recipe for vanilla ice cream that is basically how you make vanilla ice cream right now. It calls for two bottles of good cream, five yolks of eggs, um, a half pound of sugar. Um, you mix it all up, you cook it into a custard. Think creme brulee. Like ice cream that has an egg based is basically creme brulee, but we bake creme brulee to set it and we freeze ice cream to set it. But it's the same base. And um, it's also one of the first published recipes for ice cream in America is for vanilla ice cream. This comes from, it's like Jefferson's niece by marriage. She is somehow related to him. Um, a book called The Virginia Housewife that came out in the 1820s has the first ice cream recipes in America, including vanilla. And vanilla is so expensive at this time that you only see it included in ice cream recipes, not in all the ways we use it today. That's what the orchid looks like. That's right there, as a matter of fact, because now I've become obsessed with it. It is still grown in Mexico, though most of our vanilla comes from Madagascar. And it's a very sort of complicated and fussy plant. And it's actually, we don't know when vanilla became a standalone flavor. Historically, both in the Americas and in Europe, it was used to flavor chocolate. And at some point, it jumped from always being paired to chocolate 
to being on its own. And I suspect it was in France. The French, uh, the French particularly loved vanilla, and probably in the dish we know as, as creme brulee. Um, and then this uh, creme brulee with vanilla was then frozen to make vanilla ice cream. We don't see vanilla recipes until the 18th century. We see chocolate recipes in the 16th century. So it's like 200 years difference too. A couple of things changed in the 19th century that really expanded the ice cream industry. And one of those was ice. Ice historically was harvested off of lakes in New England. When ice freezes, it pushes out impurities. So the lake could be dirty AF, but like the ice <laughs> is clear on top. And um, you used to have to do this by hand, but in the middle of the 19th century, a tool was invented that could be dragged by horses. So it made it a lot easier. And that meant, particularly for us New Yorkers, this was a super affordable luxury. We stored so much ice along the Hudson that by some accounts, there was enough ice to last until the following October. So since we had access to more ice and more affordable ice, actually two industries boomed, the cocktail industry, which Americans invented, you're welcome, <laughs> and the ice cream industry as well. Other thing that helped it along was a new ice cream maker, still essentially the same thing as a sobetier, a bucket, another bucket, ice and salt in the middle. But in 1842, it was mechanized. And it actually, this was invented by a woman, um, where you can now crank the handle. The spaddle you no longer have to do by hand. It's being automatically rotated in the middle. This mechanized version froze ice cream faster, and the ice cream was better because more air was being folded into the ice cream. That meant it had a nice, um, like, fluffy, smooth mouthfeel. That is called overrun in the industry. We, and Americans especially, like a lot of air in our ice cream. It gives them a nice mouthfeel. So we have these two sort of tactical advancements that made ice cream big, but there's something else, another reason that ice cream became really popular in the Americas. And that's was ice cream parlors were the first place where it was socially acceptable for men and women to go on a date together unchaperoned. So part of the reason, this is actually uh, a parlor in New York City, part of the reason ice cream became really popular has to do with sex. <laughs> because before ice cream parlors, you, like your date came over and you sat in your parlor, in your home, in your living room, and you're like, mom watched you, and then you got married, and that's how you date. Now you can like go out and be alone in what's considered an appropriate environment. And then that also extended to groups of women. Up until this point, there was no place where groups of women could go hang out. You could not hang out in bars. That was not okay. But you could hang out in ice cream parlors. So there's also a little bit of, of feminism and freedom for American women that's tied into the popularity of ice cream as well. If you're eating ice cream at home in the 19th century, you usually had it at the end of a fancy dinner party, and you would order out for uh, a mold, essentially. Uh, ice cream was made by confectioners. It was really laborious to make at home, even with the new ice cream maker. So there were these pewter molds that you'd put the ice cream in, and then the ice cream was usually um, painted so that it looked as much like the real thing as possible, which is really amazing when you consider this roast chicken mold. <laughs> yeah. Um, the biggest private collection of ice cream molds belonged to Ivan Day, who is a British ice cream, uh, British food historian. Yeah, amazing, right? So check out his blog. I think it's just ivanday.com. Um, these are all molds he's made. The swan, the pineapple. You can see I showed you the peach mold. You can see the painted peach up there. So it's all about sort of tricking the eye, and it's this really amazing centerpiece delivered to your table. But another thing that appealed about ice cream is that it was available to anybody. 
Yes, you would order out to a confectioner, but also you could spend literally one cent and get ice cream on the street. This image is from um, Street Calls of New York, which is an awesome book from the 1850s, which is on Google Books. And it's a children's book, and it's drawings of street vendors with um, their cries next to them, like what they would say when they walked down the street. This is also something that musicologists study a lot because there was also, I mean, we still hear it in New York, right? You've probably heard a street vendor walking down the street and calling out what they're selling, and there's a rhythm and there's a musicality to what they're saying. That is a hundreds of year old New York tradition, which I think is really cool. And notice that he's using old school sorbetiers to store his ice cream too, as he sells it in the city. When you bought ice cream from an ice cream vendor, you bought it from, uh, you were served in this little dish called a penny lip. It kind of looks like how we think of an ice cream sundae cup looks today, but they're small, just a couple inches high. And the ice cream doesn't go like all the way down to the base. It just goes into that tiny indent near the top. And it's leaded glass, it's refre reflective, so it looks like you have a lot more ice cream in the glass. <laughs> you do. So you pay the penny for this, and then you had to hang out by the ice cream vendor in order to eat your ice cream. And you can see down here, there's a little boy who is just like going to town at the penny lick with his fingers. You would then hand your glass ice cream dish back to the vendor. The vendor would dunk it in water and fill it up with ice cream for the next person. In the 19th century, we don't know. <laughs> we're touching corpses and then delivering babies. We don't know. So of course we're doing this, and of course people are getting sick. And there's actually, um, this drawing is racialized, so you probably won't notice it with 21st century eyes, but the ice cream vendor has a big, bushy mustache, which is indicating that he's Italian, as many ice cream vendors by the end of the 19th century were. And so we, since we didn't have a good grasp on germ theory, instead of blaming the illness on germs, do you want to guess what we blame illness on? <laughs> oh, Italians, we did. So we're, you know, we're Americans. We're super good at being racist. Uh, it's one of our core competencies. And also, Italians didn't used to be white. They graduated to whiteness, so keep that in mind too. But at this time, they were considered uh, they were accused of bringing polio. So, so they tried to think of improvements, not actually because of disease, but because um, you could sell more ice cream if people could walk away from the carts and not have to stand there and eat it. So ice cream wrapped in paper and ice cream wrapped in cookies came up, and then eventually we, of course, get the ice cream cone. This is a drawing of an ice cream parlor from the 1820s. Things were boobalicious in the 1820s. <laughs> I can hear you whispering about it already. And it's, this is from uh, France, actually. So if there's any way that this is going to be like extra boobalicious, it's obviously France. But we're not looking at boobs right now. We're looking at ice cream cones. <laughs> so this is kind of an inset of this woman down here in the corner. And she's holding something in her hand that looks to be an ice cream cone. If it is, this is the first image of an ice cream cone ever on the planet. Again, this is also thanks to research done by Ivan Day. He wrote a super fascinating article after he found this. Um, it's, it's kind of unconfirmed, but that is what that looks like. Now, cones did exist, um, basically wafers that you rolled while they were hot but we were filling them with fresh fruit or cream or candy. And it wasn't suggested in print to put ice cream in it until the 1880s. 
This is an illustration from a book by this woman, Agnes Marshall. She is foxy. You're totally right. She's not only foxy, but she is super smart and was like ice cream crazy. She has two amazing books. The one that suggests making ice cream cones is the Book of Ices. This one is on Google Books here. Um, and she's also the first person to suggest freezing ice cream with liquid nitrogen. She suggested it in 1919, and we didn't actually do it until about 80 years later. Um, this is an illustration of uh, liquid nitrogen boiling on a block of ice. Um, she also has a book in the New York Public Library Special Collections, Fancy Ices, um, which is a real treat <laughs> to, go <laughs> to go in and look. You have to request it in advance, but it's super interesting to look at. And her flavors are just so innovative and so creative and so fascinating that if you are a pastry chef or you are just an ice at-home ice cream connoisseur and maker, like look at her stuff. You'll find inspiration. I made one of her recipes, but I like to punish myself, so I didn't make a good one. Um, I made a tri-colored vegetable Neapolitan ice cream. <laughs> the flavors are spinach, tomato, and artichoke. It's not as bad as you think it would be. Uh, it was like a like an ice cream soup. Um, it looks very beautiful. My mom helped me with it, and we we're both really proud. So it looks just like the illustrations to Agnes Marshall's book, and I think she would have been proud of us too. So if Parmesan and savory vegetable ice cream has got you hungry. Just wait for story time. We have returned. <laughs> so now we are going to do story time, which is all the things that should have gone in our normal talks, but didn't really fit. Yeah, yeah. well, I mentioned too much cut for time, but like we have this handy dandy talk to tell you about it. Yeah. These are often my favorite parts, honestly. It's like the little stupid story. Like the last time I did the history of the bodega cat from the beginning of time. So get ready for that in the podcast if you didn't get to see it in May. Go ahead, Sama. Tell us about some stuff. Here's the big problem. So, all right, who likes ice cream? Yeah. Who likes the future? <laughs> yeah, so, I used to. <laughs> yeah, you're living it now. So here's the problem. Uh, story time doesn't last forever, unfortunately. Uh, and so we can talk about one of two things. And we're going to make an audience votes. And the one thing is Dippin' Dots, and the other thing is astronaut ice cream. So, yeah, well, here's what we're going to do make some manner of sound for Dippin' Dots, some manner of sound for astronaut ice cream. said Dippin' Dots, but then everyone cheered for astronaut ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should do astronaut ice cream, because if you don't already know, the second show is the astronaut uh, game show. It's called Yeah, 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 and there may or may not be tickets. Well, here, I'll tell you one thing Dippin about Dippin' Dots. The man that invented Dippin' Dots is this guy, and he has a pretty sweet mustache there. That's all. Um, okay, so scrolling, 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 scrolling. Forever. All right, astronaut ice cream. Who likes astronaut ice cream? Yeah, no one. I'm the only person that likes astronaut ice cream. It's the best food ever invented, but guess where it never went? Space. So, astronaut ice cream. Uh, 
when you go to space, you have to make food in ma a magic special way. So 1962, John Glenn goes up, and they're like, how do people swallow in space? And everyone's like, I literally have no idea. And they're like, we don't want him to die when he's up there, so we're not going to give him like real food, just applesauce. Are you fine with applesauce? And he's like, sure. So he just ate applesauce, and he didn't choke at all. Uh, swallowing does not depend on gravity, so you can eat probably anything you want in space, as long as it's not crumbly. So, uh, 1962, John Glenn, wonderful, he ate applesauce. Uh, <laughs> 1965, this guy, totally an astronaut, absolutely an astronaut, like the coolest looking astronaut ever. He was the ninth person to walk on the moon, uh, Gemini 3. So he launched uh, with hot dogs, chicken legs, applesauce, and brownies, but they were all in tubes or packets. So who here likes to eat food out of tubes? <laughs> who here likes to eat food out of packets? Okay. So two hours into the mission, he like reaches into his suit and pulls out a corned beef sandwich that he just smuggled into space. <laughs> On rye, of course, uh, and he just eats it and he's like, yeah, that's what we do in space. And they were like, now we have to invent a bunch of other rules about how you can't sneak things into space, but it still kept happening forever. Um, so th then, once upon a time, Whirlpool, they got a contract with the government to work on space food. Uh, and of course, because when you think about food from space, you think of Whirlpool. Uh, and so they invented astronaut ice cream. So the people who will make your like dishwasher or your refrigerator, they are the ones that sent either this curse or this blessing <laughs> into the world. So some people say, 1968, Apollo 7, they say that they ate astronaut ice cream, space ice cream, on this mission. They did not. <laughs> Other people say they ate ice cream on this. Someone from Vice like did investigative reporting about this, and they called like the one surviving astronaut, <laughs> and they were like, did you eat ice cream? And he's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. We definitely did not eat ice cream there. They ate uh, uh, chocolate pudding, which is not ice cream. I mean, it's pretty good. The reason why you cannot eat ice cream in space, who has had astronaut ice cream? I have. Yeah, so two things that happen. Number one. Crumbly. Yeah, it's crumbly. It looks like this. Little tiny pieces <laughs> fly around. And guess what's a really bad thing to have in your electronics in space? Astronaut ice cream. Astronaut <laughs> ice cream. So it's the dumbest possible thing you could ever take into like a space shuttle or a capsule or anything. So just don't put it in space. Normal ice cream is actually a much better thing to have in space because it's not crumbly. And that's what they did. They, they have eaten ice cream a bazillion times in space on all the like shuttles, on all the space stations, anything that has been in space, they probably eat ice cream in it, but just normal ice cream, not no astronaut ice cream. Um, so sadly, sadly, uh, even if it was ever in space, it was a lie, it only happened once, sad. How they make it freeze-drying. What is freeze-drying? You're the science person. So you freeze it, and then you dry it, is basically <laughs> how it works. So this is what ice cream looks like. We'll look at this later. We don't need to talk about it now. Triple point. Who remembers the triple point? Woo! Sublimation? Come on. Middle school science. So you freeze something, water vapor, whatever. If you can get it down here, it doesn't melt. It just evaporates away. So they freeze it, turn it into ice, and then they make it go over here, 
uh, in terms of pressure and temperature, and then all the water kind of runs away. They use a machine that looks like this. Who has a machine that looks like this? <laughs> so one of my favorite things to do is go on YouTube for like how things are made, but not to show about how things are made, just like the, the YouTube videos of people trying to sell machines. And so there are all these people that are trying to sell you the like, freeze-drying machines, and they're always women. I don't know why. <laughs> sometimes they have hard hats on. Sometimes, is that a bunch of fish? Not really yeah, sure. I don't know what this yeah. she's freeze-drying. But it's really, big, really big fish. Um, but you can freeze-dry things in theory by just leaving ice cubes in the freezer, and then it sublimates away. It doesn't taste good, though. So uh, if you want to do this, you need a vacuum pump. Uh, apparently, you can do it with a bicycle pump, but I want to use that for my bike. Also, it takes forever. So tapioca <laughs> maltodextrin, who's heard of this? Yeah. Yeah, so it will dehydrate fat, which is something that's basically impossible to do. And by dehydrate fat, it, like, it pretends to be dehydrated, but that's fine. So I did this. I combined non-fat dry milk, <laughs> sugar, and then I took olive oil, and then I whipped it in a food processor with tapioca maltodextrin. And then I made deconstructed ice cream. And it's basically astronaut ice cream. It would melt in your mouth. It was, it was good. It was fun. <laughs> you can make it chocolate if you want. Okay. It was the other one vanilla? Was it just milk flavor? This was vanilla. Uh, it was milk flavored. You're right. But that's good. You know my favorite food? Do you remember my favorite food ever? Dry milk powder? No, sweet and condensed milk. Okay. Because yeah. when you like... It's oh, super condensed. Yeah, that the, the sugars, do the caramelize, it's delicious. Yeah, so... Uh, Let's hear for sweet and condensed milk. <laughs> That's really, that's my like ending of everything. <laughs> really the ending for the other one was better. Actually, no, these are both disappointing science experiments. <laughs> I have a better science experiment that happens when I talk about stretchy ice cream. But for now, Sarah, you talk about things. Wait, how, that was it? Yeah, yeah, that's the end, that's the end. There's no climax to this. <laughs> Right, yeah, your, sorry. What's your favorite flavor of stripe of uh, Amazon? Amazon? Wait, wait. Has I tried ice to cream? make Dippin' Dots, and then it looked like this. So, <laughs> also, has anyone ever been here to buy dry ice? Because it's really the only place to buy dry ice in New York City, and it's a pretty cool place. We can talk about it later if you're really interested. <laughs> Some of you forgot your beer. Oh, I need that. What's your favorite flavor of astronaut ice cream? All of them. Really? together. Yeah. I like. I eat the chocolate first because it's my least favorite. I eat the strawberry last because it's my most favorite. You, you do you, man. You that? do you. Uh, also, I was saying backstage to that dating Cleveland is interesting because there is the John Glenn Research Center. So like, people's jobs on Tinder is literally astronaut. I've, <laughs> I've not been on any dates with any astronauts yet because they are nerds. I gave you some pretty sweet openers there. No, that dude was not a nerd. Did you see that man? That cigar, corned beef sandwich in space. I have not seen him on Tinder. <laughs> it's all astronauts and don't doctors. Give up. So like, don't give up. you take a bus to Cleveland, ladies. Leave the New York men behind. The ratios are against you, so we did a bunch of research about this. Um, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll save that for another lecture. Or you can just have some about it. Yeah. Because we're going to talk about something gross. So, this is the earliest ice cream recipe that is known. It was uh, recorded in, yes, Soma, what? It's not ice cream, it's icy cream. To make icy cream. This is literally the first time she has seen this 
being made. And this is Lady Anne Fanshawe. She's in the Spanish court with her husband, the ambassador from England. And in the Spanish court, they are making ice cream. And so she writes down the recipe. And she even gives you a couple suggestions of how to flavor it. This is not just the first recipe in English. This is the earliest known written recipe. There are no published recipes until the 1670s, I believe. And this is 1654. So she says, best cream, boil it with a blade of mace. Mace is related to nutmegs. I don't have time. Google it. It looks like fire on nutmeg. Like nutmeg Correct. went to the Guy Fieri restaurant. Yes. <laughs> nutmeg is a fruit. So there's fruit, then there's mace, then there's the seed. The seed is the nutmeg. Um, uh, or else perfume it with orange flower water. Mention that. Or ambergris. What's that? What's ambergris? That's ambergris. What's that? <laughs> Correct. For some reason, I have that slide twice, or things are broken. Uh, ambergris comes from sperm whales. <laughs> so it, sperm whales eat squid, and everything is digestible in a squid except for their beaks. Their beaks are made of the same material that your fingernails are made out of. So in most sperm whales, they eat a bunch of squid, and then eventually they cough up the beaks like a cat <laughs> in a hairball. So, um, but in 5% of male sperm whales, um, they develop an impaction of squid beaks in their bowels. So if you've heard of ambergris before, you've probably heard of it as being whale puke. That is actually incorrect. It is too far down the digestive tract. It's impacted in their bowels, and the squid beaks get surrounded with mucus and fecal matter. And then the whale might eventually shit it out. <laughs> But scientists believe that it actually probably splits the digestive tract and kills them, okay? It's just 5% of male sperm whales. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so, um... So we take a death shit and we put it in ice cream. <laughs> is what you're telling <laughs> P.S. We are apparently the best comedy acts in New York City. That is correct. According to best comedy acts NYC. Dot com or something home. like that. Yeah. We were recommended tonight. And my response was, I am, I'm funny, but never intentionally. Um, so then this whale, this painful whale death shit floats in the ocean. Well, sometimes. Sometimes we just get it straight out of a whale. But when you, like, pull it out of a beached whale, it is very low quality. It's um, still flexible. Is that a word I can use? It's, yeah. Yeah, pliable and smelly. It smells highly fecal, so it's very low quality. What's ideal is if it, if after the whale dies and rots away, the ambergris floats around in the ocean. It's ambergris or ambergris. It's from a French word, so you, you can do it French, you can do it American. Um, it cures in the salt water in the sun, and it goes from black to white to gray, and gray is the most highly prized. So this young lad, I think he's Australian, and he found this floating in the ocean when he was swimming one day. Um, and you can also, the most common way to get it is that it washes up on beaches. It's hard to predict exactly where because sperm whales, unlike other whales, don't have uh, a migratory route. They're just like all over where they want to be. But according to different ocean currents, there are some places where it is more likely to find it. New Zealand is a big place to find it, Indonesia is a big place to find it, and Long Island is a big place to find <laughs> it. However, there's a great book about ambergris where the guy tries to find a piece of ambergris on his own by the end of the book. And since like, the way you test for it is if it smells slightly fecal and you can make an indentation in it with your thumbnail, um, sometimes you pick up dog shit instead. <laughs> Here are the grades of ambergris. 
Oh, excuse me. It goes from gray to white. So the fresh is really dark and soft. And then basically this is how long it's been floating around in the ocean. And then the white ambergris is the um, most valuable and most expensive. So it is no longer used as a food flavorant, even though it was very popular as an ice cream flavor in the early days of ice cream. Um, it is still used in the perfume industry, but not commonly in America, because this ingredient is protected under the Endangered Species Act, in that you cannot sell or buy it in America. Um, a lot of people are kind of pushing back against that because you don't kill the whales to get it, you usually find it. But the fear is historically when we were hunting whales, they would like check whale bowels for ambergris because currently ambergris, no, I actually take that back. I was gonna say it's more expensive than gold, but gold prices have been skyrocketing recently, but it is almost as expensive as gold per ounce. It is because you can't, you can't grow it. There's no way to like, you can get synthesize. Get a tank for the sperm whale at home. But it's only 5% of male ones, so how do you know? Get 20 of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. So I did make um, ambergris ice cream. I made it for a podcast, actually. That looks delicious. <laughs> it's out of a baby's head. <laughs> <laughs> looks delicious. Um, I made it for a podcast called Gastropod. If you don't listen to already, you probably should. They're just delightful, sweet human beings, unlike us, honestly. They're way nicer than us. Um, and it was for an episode on ice cream. So if you want to get a better sense of like how this tastes, I make it, and then the host and I eat it. And in brief, I was repulsed by it, and the host, Nikki, was genuinely heartbroken that she was never going to taste this thing again. So I would say it's got... Uh, it's divisive, I would say. So seriously, look up the podcast, download it, um, and uh, yeah, listen to it. It's really, really fun. Rules of ice cream. Who likes ice cream? <laughs> All right, number one rule of ice cream. Ice cream is the best food. I, I can literally do nothing but eat ice cream 24-7. That's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I wouldn't need to sleep because I just would have ice cream sustaining me. Uh, I don't think I can afford that. Uh, maybe I could. I don't know. I wouldn't want to try. We'll leave that experiment to someone else. Um, so what is ice cream? Like, what counts as ice cream? What are, like, the ingredients for ice cream? Rich cream. Rich cream, specifically. Okay. So there are a million different things that are, like, kind of like ice cream or a million different varieties of ice cream or a million things that are related to ice cream. And the question is, like, a, what is ice cream? B, does it matter? C, are we gonna be assholes about what is ice cream, what isn't ice cream? All of these will be answered. So in terms of ingredients, let's hear the ingredients again. We added milk, rich cream, rich cream <laughs> sugar. Yeah, okay, so here's the magic about like frozen desserts. All of these things are true, yes, but what they boil down to is not the ingredient itself, such as milk or cream, it's more so categories. So for example, fats, that's cream. Solids, milk, sugar, or sweetener. So like corn syrup falls under that category. And then other stuff. Um, so ice cream has like specific rules about what is ice cream. But before we get there, let's take a step back and talk about what we could use for each of these ingredients for all beautiful frozen desserts. 
So fats give you a nice rich taste, a wonderful mouthfeel. It makes things unctuous, I guess. Um, if you put too much fat into, who here makes ice cream at home? Anyone? Yeah, so if you put too much fat, it just turns into butter. And you're like, why did I make butter? So, it's so cold and it's grainy, but you have to eat it. Uh, and if you have too little, do we have that cool science slide? I don't know if we have, okay, I'm just gonna tell you right now. So the way that ice cream works is, who's had salad dressing? Everyone, like you shake up the salad dressing, it's like Italian, it turns into an emulsion, where like the, the water or the oil and the vinegar kind of come together. That's basically what ice cream does, uh, where the fats and the liquids turn into an emulsion, and the fats kind of like get in the way of the little pieces of water becoming friends. Because if the little pieces of water become friends, they turn into really jagged, terrible, icy pieces of ice that you don't want in your ice cream. Whereas if there's a nice emulsion, if there's a lot of fat, it interferes a lot with the ice coming together. So it makes little tiny crystals that don't taste like tiny crystals instead of big crystals, which do taste like big crystals. Just so you know, we might have a picture of that later. Okay, so solids, texture, and chew. You saw before I had a dry, non-fat milk powder that I put into some ice cream. That's a normal ice cream ingredient. Uh, you can also just use normal uh, milk as well. Sugars, sugars depress the freezing point so that when you freeze it, it turns into like a delightful icy thing instead of like a brick of ice. Uh, corn syrup, if you make ice cream yourself, substitute corn syrup in for sugar. It's not as sweet as sugar, so you use a little bit more, uh, but it makes things chewy. It just makes it better. Every, literally every way that <laughs> sugar exists, corn syrup is the better version of that. <laughs> and it's not like high fructose corn syrup, because some people are probably like, ah. This is just like the normal corn syrup that you buy at the store, which is basically the same thing. Uh, and then other stuff, and we'll talk about the other stuff later. So how do we know what ice cream is? Like if only there was someone that came down from the heavens and was like, here's what ice cream is. Here are the rules of ice cream. This is how ice cream is gonna be. And that person exists and it's called the FDA. <laughs> and so the FDA is protecting us and making sure we know. I spent so much time doing the FDA on his chest today. It was so much fun. So um, just so you know that I made it, I didn't get it from the internet. So what's the point? Uh, the FDA is like, yeah, we have to make rules about what ice cream is. They make rules about everything, but specifically ice cream. So. If we want to talk about ice cream, if we want to talk about like the laws and the rules of what ice cream are, just a general overview is ice cream is more than 10% milk fat. Uh, it has nine to 12% milk solids, 12 to 16% sweeteners, and it is 4.5 pounds or more weight-wise per gallon because ice cream is sold by volume, uh, not by weight. That becomes important later. So this is the general way that ice cream works. It just has a certain percent of milk fat, solids, and sweeteners. When you deviate from that, that's when you end up with different products that are ice cream-like, but not quite ice cream. An important thing to note is uh, 10 to 20% milk fat. Coconut milk makes really, really good ice cream because generally speaking, the fat content in a can of coconut milk is about 20%, which is the same thing that a good ice cream would be. So all you have to do is take that can of coconut milk, add a little bit of sweetener, throw it in your ice cream machine, and bam, uh, you didn't have to go buy like one of those tiny things of cream or whatever. So 
if you start to adjust these ratios. All right, less than 10% milk fat. It used to be called ice milk. Who here had a thing called ice milk in their life? And you're like, this is cheating. This is fake ice cream. And it was fake ice cream because it just didn't have enough fat. But in 1994, the FDA is like, it's fine. We'll call that ice cream too. We'll call it low-fat ice cream. And it just tastes gross because as we talked about before, you need all that fat to keep those ice crystals from forming. So it's just icier ice cream. And icy ice cream is bad. If you have more than 1.4% eggs by weight, or like 1.6% eggs by weight, if it includes 2% nuts or something like that, there's a really long description, that becomes frozen custard or French ice cream or custard French ice cream. Any of those count. Um, Sarah, you didn't talk about eggy, custardy ice cream, but now you know the difference. Did you? Okay. I stopped paying. I okay. Sorry. It happens. Uh, anything else? Frozen dairy dessert. So frozen dairy dessert. You're like, I've never seen that. Um, laser pointer. Frozen dairy dessert. They actually changed their recipe to be, they, they left the grace of ice cream and turned into a frozen dairy dessert. Some of the like fancier versions of Briars are ice cream, but generally speaking, if you get something, frozen dairy dessert, and that is generally just because they have, you know, too little milk fat, and then probably a bunch of other extra stuff in there. Um, Turkey Hill, it is light ice cream. And you say, wow, light ice cream, that's fun. We'll talk about, well, there are a few different ways to get light ice cream. Let's just say it's ice milk for now. That'll be fine, right? So I'm going through this FDA list of all the kinds of ice cream that exists and all the ice cream rules. It's very, very long, and they have all these categories. Ice cream, a frozen custard, goat's milk ice cream. Also, it's like 2,500 words describing all the kinds of ice cream. Uh, sherbet, water ices, and mellarine. Has anyone had mellarine before? Yeah, so I was like, what the hell is mellarine? And I looked it up. Mellarine is ice cream that does not, or that uses non-animal fats in it. So vegetable oil instead of milk fat. So it's like the margarine to butter, but it's a frozen ice cream dish. And there are basically no rules about it, except there's a really popular brand in the Philippines that can't come over here because uh, someone is squatting on their trademark here. And so they're just like suing each other. And so, I don't know, maybe you can find that in the grocery store. Who knows? So if you have, so oh, look at that. Artificial flavor added. Natural and artificial flavors added. There are a lot of rules about artificial and natural flavors. Artificial flavors are wonderful. But if you only have natural flavors, this is the rule. If the food contains no artificial flavor, the name of the principal display panel or panels of the label shall be accompanied by the common or usual name of the characterizing flavor, e.g. vanilla in letters not less than one half the height of the letters used in the words ice cream. And you're like, lol, like what a dumb thing that you have to do. If you have artificial flavors in your ice cream, these are the rules about what you have to do. Such as, in the case of fruit or fruit juice used in combination with artificial fruit flavor, if the quantity of the fruit or fruit juice is used in such that in relation to the weight of the finished ice cream, the weight of the fruit or fruit juice, as the case may be, including water necessary to reconstitute partially or wholly dry fruits or fruit juices, the original moisture kind of less than 2%. In the case of citrus ice cream, 6%. In the case of berry or cherry ice cream, 10%. In the case of ice cream prepared with other fruits, then, uh, that refers, then, 
an artificial flavor simulating the characterizing flavor shall be deemed to predominate. I love it. It's so much fun. Go look it up. FD rules about this. But my favorite part. Okay, Sarah asked about this earlier. Neapolitan ice cream also rules specifically about Neapolitan ice cream. So if two more flavors of an ice cream are distinctly combined, then you have to have special rules about them. Makes sense, I guess, you label them separately, because why not? They're different ice creams. Let's all stick together. So none of that matters. None of that matters. <laughs> the one thing that's important is 4.5 pounds per gallon. What a weird thing to say about ice cream. Why do you have to say, here's the weight of ice cream based on volume? So Sarah mentioned this, and I was scared that she was going to spoil it. Uh, but the answer is overrun. When you have ice cream, when you start churning the ice cream, if you just took a container of milk or cream and you froze it, you would have like a popsicle that's made out of cream, kind of. The difference between ice cream and freezing a block of sweet cream is that there's air inside of that ice cream. As you churn it, as you freeze it, air gets worked into there, which makes it nice and pillowy, which makes it like a gentle frozen slab that you're eating. This, as Sarah mentioned, is called overrun. If you have, you have your ice cream base. You have your ice cream base and you start churning your ice cream base. You start off with one gallon of ice cream and because you're churning, you're churning, you're churning, you end up with one and a half gallons of ice cream at the end. This is 50% overrun. You have 50% more ice cream than you did have ice cream base. Seems pretty good. Quality, quality, quality ice creams are like 20% overrun to 50% overrun. But you know what? Let's make some more money. Let's start with that same one gallon of ice cream and let's churn it and churn it and churn it and then combine it with another gallon of air. So now we have, we started with one gallon of ice cream base and now we're up to two gallons of finished ice cream. That's 100% overrun. And you're like, no, I want even more money. You can only call this ice cream. The next one is not ice cream. So you start with that same one gallon of base, you churn it and churn it and churn it and then you have three parts air to two parts ice cream, up to two and a half gallons of ice cream, what you are selling at that point is more air than it is ice cream based. 150% overrun, you're not allowed to call it um, ice cream anymore. You have to call it like a frozen dairy dessert. That's fine though. So it gets to the point where you're literally just selling air. When you buy an ice cream that seems to be lower in fat, one of the things they do to make it lower in fat or to make it less caloric is just whip more air into it. Because per like cup of ice cream, you just have 50% less ice cream. It's just a bunch more air. So you're actually eating air. You're not eating ice cream. So you're not paying for like the magic science of like low fat ice cream. You're paying for the magic science that they like put it in a blender and then they turn it into an air. It's fine. So additives, other things you put in there to make this happen. Because the more air you put in there, actually ice cream with large amounts of overrun is actually pretty cool because it melts slower because air is an insulator uh, and it tastes really light on your tongue. But if you have like a thicker ice cream, you can also do other things to make it taste thicker, to make it more rich, such as additives. This is locust bean dung. People seem to hate additives. It's silly. Some of these have names like diglycerides and monoglycerides and lecithin. But like locust bean dung, guar gum, those seem like they come from plants, right? And if you hate additives, get over it. It does the same thing as eggs. Uh, basically all additives do, they work as stabilizers, they work as thickeners, 
and they just give more body, kind of the same way that milk solids do. They interfere with the freezing. They just make everything better. Love them. They make things taste good. Um, don't just say, I want like the purest, <laughs> nicest ice cream that's just like the God sent down cream and milk and sugar and I made an ice cream. No, adding additives to your ice cream does not mean it's like a cheap cop-out. People are actually crafting their ice cream to be a certain flavor or a certain texture and additives are sometimes part of that. And if you're like, no, it's still additives. Well, how about this? Don't be Americans about it because one of the best kinds of ice cream is called Donderma. It's from Turkey. Uh, it's exciting, it's fun. I've used this picture for 100 years because it's the best picture. But you might be like, I hate it. He has a big mustache. We learned that people <laughs> with big mustaches, Americans don't like them. So the thing about Donderma is if you ever go on YouTube, you can see a million pictures of people serving Donderma to unsuspecting tourists or suspecting tourists. And they just play fun games with them because Don Derma is, can you do this with normal ice cream? Probably not. It's a very thick ice cream. Um, it has a lot of texture to it. And it's going to bring it out. And then we're going to go to the next slide. Come on. So that is a, that's, you know, several hundred gallons of Don Derma. I'll just snatch this thing. She doesn't get to eat it. It's fine. So the reason why it's able to do this um, is an orchid, something called salep. So salep comes from an orchid. It's actually not like the flower or the petals. It's actually the roots, uh, which is, they're called fox testicles because I guess they look like fox testicles. So the magic thing that happens with these, I mean, right? So the magic thing that happens with these ground up fox testicles um, is they make the ice cream stretchy. You can actually stretch, like whoever gets to stretch ice cream, probably never, but if you see it being made, it's actually kneaded, it's actually stretched, and it's pretty fun to look at. Um, so the orchid itself is called Orchis mascula, which means like the virile orchid. So fox testicles, virile orchid, if you go on Wikipedia, um, it talks about the orchid and it says they produce an erect stem, which I think that's just something that plants do. Like, that's not a weird thing, but apparently it's important enough to call out a Wikipedia. So you're really excited for this ice cream. You're like, I want stretchy ice cream. I want some fox testicles. Sadly, it's illegal to export salep from Turkey. You cannot export salep from Turkey, so we cannot get true Don Burma here in the U.S. But... People did science stuff. They analyzed salep powder and they said, oh, this polysaccharide, glucominin, that is the compound that makes this ice cream stretchy. So are there other plants out there that we can get this compound from that will also enable us to make stretchy ice cream? Cognac, not the drink, the plant. It's a beautiful, wonderful flower. Uh, the scientific name for it is amyl. Amorphophallus cognac. Um, <laughs> a, amorphophallus means like ill, ill shapen penis. Um, I don't know, there's too much. So, so people love to take pictures with their cognac flowers. You can never be too old or too cool to love a cognac flower. But the thing is, we don't care about the flower. What we actually care about is the root, it's called the corn. And that's the thing that we're going to grind up in order to get the same kind of thing as our fox testicles, orchid roots. So uh, the Japanese make a thing called konyaku. 
Uh, my dad had a girlfriend who wouldn't eat this, and then he broke up with her. So I'd like to think they're related, but <laughs> he wouldn't eat it either. Uh, if anyone really likes shirataki noodles, um, it's made out of the same thing. They're like zero-calorie fibrous noodles. I don't know. So anyway, you can find the recipe. Uh, someone from Nomu, I believe, uh, Ariel Johnson, she designed sustainable and stretchable ice cream. The reason why you can't export salep from Turkey is because uh, it's endangered, or whatever the plant version of endangered is. Uh, and you know, you gotta keep it there, don't destroy it all. So, you can go on the internet. I read this, I went on the internet. I bought gluconin, 100% pure powder, healthy weight management, because it's just fiber. And I think you can't sell it as that anymore. I think the FDA cracked down on it. Um, so you take this creepy powder, you make ice cream, you mix this powder with the ice cream. You heat it up, because just like something like cornstarch uh, or anything else you would use like kicking a stew, you gotta heat it up to get it started to activate. Heat it up, make a little like milky roux. You beat it, it starts to look kind of weird. Does that look like ice cream? No, way too shiny, way too shiny. Freeze it in a normal ice cream and then you start to knead it. Now, last time I tried to make a tube, it didn't really work out. It was sad, right? Like that, sure I made kind of astronaut ice cream, but it was kind of a farce. But it turns out that if you mix this magic, magic compound into your ice cream, it will turn into total 100% stretchy ice cream. When you eat it, it doesn't taste stretchy, it just tastes kind of thick. But that looks cool, right? Like, it's fine. So I don't have any pictures of me eating it. I lost all of those, but I promise it happened. But if you want to eat it, you can go to Cedars down in Bay Ridge. I don't know why their name on Yelp is Cedars Pastry Ice Cream, um, but they will serve you this. It's delicious. Um, there's also a pistachio version. Don't get like chocolate, strawberry, any of the like normal ice cream flavors because that will not be stretchy. Or if you, for some reason, live in Williamsburg, um, the Republic of Fusa is a place that sells it and it looks real stretchy in all the pictures um, and additionally this place here if you're in Manhattan uh, they will sell in grocery stores and they're expanding all over the place now so lessons learned number one there are a lot of rules about ice cream so like even if the rest of the world is falling apart you know that when you get ice cream it's ice cream unless it says it's not uh, when you buy cheap ice cream, you're only cheating yourself. You can get air for free. And I don't know, there are a lot of dictions. <laughs> the end. All right. Come back next month. That's it for us. Next month, we're doing sushi. Thank you, everyone, for coming out.